Would you turn with me in your Bibles at this time to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. This is going to be part one of a two-part message that will conclude, uh, Lord willing, tonight. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. In just a moment, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16. One of the clearest passages, I believe, as to the purpose of the church is found right here in Ephesians chapter 4. God has given incredible insight into what he expects the church to be and to do, and it is spelled out very clearly for us in our passage here this morning. From time to time, we're in need of such reminders, even if we've been attending church for many years. And then there are other times where we're forced to address a matter and offer explanation on a subject for the purpose of setting a matter straight. The fact of the matter is that we live in an ever-changing world, one that has become increasingly man-centered rather than God-centered, and this mentality, sadly, often creeps into the church. Rather than allowing the Bible to be what molds our minds and governs our thoughts, we've allowed the teachings of man to take over. We have the warning in Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 8, which states, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The Apostle Paul also warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 3 through 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. And as a pastor, it is my responsibility to shepherd the flock of God where he has led me, and that means that I'm to preach the entire counsel of God and to protect the flock from outside influences which seek to lead people astray. It's no secret that the devil uses all sorts of tactics to attack the church, and when we're not careful, we can allow unbiblical teaching to creep into our church and to gain a foothold. As God's under-shepherd here at Latham Bible Baptist Church, I am accountable for everything that is taught behind this pulpit and what we stand for while the Lord keeps me here. And as long as I'm here, nothing short of God's undefiled and perfect word of God will ever be spread. God has made it clear that it is my responsibility to teach his word, to preach his word, and to address matters that creep in head on. A shepherd must care for his sheep, must nurture them, must instruct them, feed them, and at times fight off the wolves. Your Bibles are open to Ephesians chapter 4. Follow along as I read verses 11 through 16. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, 
may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. God has given pastors to the church, this passage tells us, for the sake of perfecting the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Perfecting the saints speaks of being strengthened to the point of completion. God desires that each of his children be strengthened, be equipped in the faith, so that they're not wavering, he says. They're not going back and forth through all the different things that are being spread. All the different winds of doctrine, he says, that can be swirling through our church or different ideas that may be presented here and there. God expects us to be stable in our faith as we stand firmly upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and his word. As a pastor, this means that I often have to teach some difficult truths, but truths that are required that all of our attention be made known because we will otherwise be prone to sway back and forth instead of remaining steadfast as God has called us to be. Listen to how Paul describes this same matter in Acts chapter 20 and verses 27 to 31. He says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. Paul describes here his own burdens for the people and wanting to make sure that they are steadfast in their faith. It's not enough for you to attend a Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church. You need to know for yourself what the Bible has to say about certain issues. Your answer can't be when people ask you what you believe about something. You can't say, well, I believe what my church believes. Because the next question is, well, what does your church believe? Well, I believe what what the pastor preaches. And what does the pastor preach? Well, he preaches what the church believes. And you go in the cycle, in the circle, basically saying nothing. You need to know for yourself what you believe and why you believe it. So today we're going to take a close look at a doctrine that has been swirled around, at a doctrine that has been taught, at a doctrine that is unbiblical, the doctrine of Calvinism. And we're going to see what the Bible has to say about all five points. And I've titled my message this morning, Five Problems with Calvinism. Calvinism began in the year 1618. And it began in response to another view that was known as Arminianism. Arminianism taught that on their own, man could do nothing good. That before the foundation of the world, God chose to save everyone who would freely trust in Christ, that Jesus died for everyone, but his death only redeems believers. That people can choose to accept or reject God's plan of salvation, and since salvation is a choice, they viewed that it could be lost. John Calvin and his followers, they responded with a view of their own, which eventually became known as Calvinism. And this teaches that man is totally depraved and unable to respond to the gospel on his own. That salvation comes because God has chosen to regenerate some people, not due to any human decision. That Christ's death atoned only for those who were chosen to salvation. That God's regeneration can neither be resisted nor rejected. And that every elect person will persevere in faith until the end. These five points of Calvinism are consolidated into an acronym known as TULIP. Total depravity, 
unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Five points. And this morning, as well as this evening, I'd like to look at each of these five points and show you the problem with each point as, see, as we see what God's word has to say about the matter. So problem number one, total depravity. Now let me just say, the Bible does teach on the depravity of man. But we need to understand what depravity means. Because Calvinists will put a whole new meaning on this word. Depravity literally means a bent towards sin. Every one of us are born with a bent towards sin. You don't need to teach children how to do bad. You need to teach them how to do good because they're inherently sinful and wanting to do bad. Depravity is a bent towards sin. It is the, the penetration of sin in every aspect to a person's being. It is the ability of man to commit any sin and having no means by which to save himself. The Bible clearly teaches that. But what Calvinists will do is they'll take that total depravity and take it a step further. Calvinists suggest that the total depravity is more a total inability. That man has a loss of conscience, the commission of every sin possible, or that man is as bad as he possibly can be. The problem with this is that the only possible way for a person to then be saved will be for God to overpower man and give him the ability to be saved. The Bible does very clearly teach us that man is sinful and that there is no possibility of a man ever earning his salvation through his own work, individual or collective. We're told in Jeremiah 17, 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We're told in Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So no matter how much good we may do in the eyes of the world, the Bible makes it very clear, it is all tainted by sin. There's nothing good in the eyes of God as far as earning our own entrance into heaven. The Bible also tells us in Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. And then in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is guilty. Every one of us is sinful. Every one of us is doomed on our own. That is what the Bible very clearly teaches. But nowhere does the Bible teach that none of us have the ability to come to Christ. In fact, when we read the Bible, the message is crystal clear that we all have the ability to come to Christ. Jesus declared in John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all of Scripture. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're told in Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus argued with the Jews. He stated this in John 5, verse 40. He says, And you will not come to me that you might have life. You can come to me is what he's saying, but you're choosing willfully not to come to me that you might have everlasting life. He's clear that man has the ability to come to him, but this specific group that he's speaking to chose not to. It wasn't a matter of whether or not they could or couldn't come to him, but whether they wanted to come to him. Towards the end of Christ's public ministry, he wept out over Jerusalem and he said this in Matthew 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. 
Jesus wept over the Jews' rejection of him, which he wouldn't have done if the Jews didn't have the ability to reject him in the first place. He wanted, he says, to gather them together, but because they had the ability to come to him or to not come to him, they chose to reject him, and thus he weeps over those who rejected him. The very last invitation in the entire Bible offers us further insight into man's ability to come to Christ. Listen to what we read in Revelation 22 and verse number 17. It says, And the Spirit and bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Over and over and over again, the Bible is clear that God has given man the ability to come to him or to reject him. Christ wouldn't have gotten upset with the Jews for not receiving him, for not coming to him, if they never had the ability to come and receive him in the first place. What sense does that make? He's going to argue with people that don't have the ability to do anything? Are we going to argue with blind people that, because they can't see? How ridiculous is that? The Bible is crystal clear that it's not man's ability that stands between him and God, but his own personal will. He's choosing not to go to God. God gave each person a free will and the opportunity to act upon that free will. Each of the verses that we pointed out established this truth. Whosoever will may come to God. The Bible is clear. Calvinists like to go to John 6.44. John 6.44 where Christ states, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now we have a problem, right? Because this, this Bible verse says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at that last day. In their eyes, that is all the evidence the Calvinist needs that man is completely unable to come to God, and God must be the one to overpower man. The only problem with this is that when you read the full context of John chapter 6, Jesus makes it very clear that the Father drawing the people has nothing to do with saving them, but it has everything to do with showing them the truth. Notice what we read in the very next verses, John 6, 45-47. The Bible says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. He is drawing them by teaching them. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Jesus makes it clear that salvation doesn't come through God drawing a person to himself, saving the individual whether he wants it or not but through believing on Jesus Christ. God drawing us is what he is doing through the prophets of old, through what he's doing through the preaching and the proclamation of the word of God today. He is revealing himself and God is making himself known to all men. He is drawing all men to Jesus Christ through the word of God going forth. You are responsible to make the decision to believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Later on, Jesus said in John 12, 32, he said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. If Christ drawing men refers to them being saved, we've got a big problem here. Because Christ is then saying that he is saving everyone. We'll draw all men unto me. So we're now we're universalists. Every single person is going to be saved. Well, our work is done, right? Go home. Let's throw away our Bibles and stop following Christ. Because everyone's saved. Everyone's going to be in heaven, right? That's not what he's saying. 
This is why knowing the context of each verse is important. Because when you approach Scripture with an agenda, when you approach Scripture with a specific viewpoint, you can make any verse say what you want it to say. Christ is very clearly teaching here that all men are drawn to him. As in, he makes himself known to all men, even if not everyone, even if everyone doesn't come to him in faith. In Romans chapter 1, in verses 19 through 20, makes this truth clear. It says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God has shown himself and made everything known to people that is required for them. He says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everyone has been given a vision, a manifestation of God. God makes himself known to all men. And then when you continue on to read into Romans chapter 2, the Bible tells us that God has also given every single person a conscience. To think for themselves. We're not robots who are controlled by God, whether we like it or not. God has given us a conscience to know good and evil. Even if we don't have a set of written rules that we're following after, we have it in our minds and on our hearts. God has told us what is right and wrong. By which we are held accountable if we choose to reject Christ. Everyone has a choice. No one will be in heaven because God took them there whether they wanted to be there or not. No one will be in hell because they never had a choice in the matter. Problem number two, unconditional election. Unconditional election. Calvinists believe that before time began, God foreordained people to either hell or to heaven. And since man is completely unable to come to God, God determined in advance that you were either going to heaven or hell. Your destiny was set, it was determined before you were ever born where you were going to be. You had no say in the matter, you had no choice in it at all. God elected you and his election is unconditional. You have nothing to do with it, so you better hope that God chose you for heaven and not for hell. Now this teaching contradicts scripture in so many areas because we've already made it clear that God has made himself known to all of us and that it is our responsibility to respond to his free offer of salvation by believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But listen to John Calvin's own words on this view. Listen to what he says. I quote, Not all men are created with similar destiny. But eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestined either to life or to death. In other words, God doesn't give man any opportunity. Man's fate is already predestined to either heaven or hell, and God determined this before man was ever created. Therefore, God created people for the specific purpose of eternally punishing them. And if everyone's final de destiny is already determined, what is the purpose of soul winning? What is the purpose of reading the Bible? What is the purpose of missions? What is the purpose of coming to church? If God has already predestined each and every one of our fates, and we can't do anything to undo what he's done before the foundation of the world, why do we bother preaching the gospel? Better yet, why did God send his only, his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins? If he predestined 
that I'm going to be in heaven and that other people are going to be in hell, what does it matter? Why put his only begotten son through something that brought him more agony and more pain than what he ever experienced if it's already determined where man is going to end up? This view begins to completely unravel the more questions you ask. The Bible does speak of the doctrines of foreknowledge, of predestination and election, but they're not at all as the Calvinists would suggest. The foreknowledge of God speaks of God knowing everything at all times. God knows what is going to happen. God knows how everything is going to happen, and God knows when everything is going to happen. Nothing takes God by surprise. But God's foreknowledge doesn't mean that man still does not have a free will. God can still know everything that man will do, that man will think, that man will say without controlling every aspect of man's nature, without having to predestine what man would do. Predestination is also a biblical doctrine, but not the way Calvinists teach it. The Bible makes it clear that God has determined in advance two things. Not the individual to either heaven or hell, but he has determined in advance both the means of salvation, which will be through Jesus Christ, and the results of salvation, which will be that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 4 through 6, and verses 11 through 12, this is what the Bible says. It says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if I stop there, we'd be on board with Calvinism. But if you read the context and the rest of the verse, it tells us more. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He says he has foreordained and he predestined that man will be saved through Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. And that once we're saved, we'll be conformed to the image of his son to the praise and the honor of his glory. Not that the individual is predestined to heaven or hell. Where do you see that in scripture? You never see that in scripture. It's not there. It says in, in verse 11 and 12, it says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. The inheritance is what is predestined, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. We also read in Romans 8, 29, a famous verse that Calvinists would like to use and pause in the middle of the verse because that is when it fits their meaning. And you read any further, it punches holes in their view. It says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be, uh, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God predestinated that the outcome of salvation would be that believers are conformed into the image of his son. The basic idea of the doctrine of predestination is that before time began, God determined that man would be saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ and that those who are saved would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture is predestination spoken of in the negative where a person is foreordained to hell. It is always in reference to how a person is saved and the results of that salvation. In fact, Jesus states in Matthew 25 and verse number 41 that hell was actually prepared for the devil and his angels. So if before time began, he predestined certain individuals to hell, well, that goes against what the Bible says. Because then it wasn't just prepared for the devil and his angels, as Matthew 25, 41 says, but it was prepared for all the unsaved as well. God's original plan was that everyone would be saved. 
But he's given us a free will that that's not going to happen. The doctrine of election or the elect is biblical as well, but again, not the way the Calvinist would suggest. The elect refers to those who are the beneficiaries of God's grace and his blessings. Every time the word is used in scripture, it is used as an adjective or noun, never a verb. This means that God is only using the word to show people in their present condition, not that they are going to be saved. It doesn't describe how they became elect. We see this word appear a number of times in the New Testament. Every time it appears in the Gospels, it is only used in reference to the nation of Israel. One time it is used later on in the New Testament to describe angels, and the rest of the time it appears in the New Testament, it is a reference to believers, and all it does is describe their present condition. They are saved, therefore they are the elect. God has predetermined how people get saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. God has chosen what happens to people who believe on Jesus Christ, that they are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And those who believe on Christ are called the elect or they're called chosen. These are biblical doctrines and we shouldn't shy away from discussing them. But we need to understand what the Bible actually says and how it actually teaches. Some Christians are so terrified of touching some of these doctrines with a 10-foot pole because they don't know enough to know how to properly interpret scripture. If the Bible talks about it, we should know about it. Where we're prone to get off track is when we read other books and try to make the ideas and the views of those other books fit into what the Bible says. If the Bible is not molding your beliefs, something is wrong. If you're having to twist scripture or to take it out of context or only apply part of the verse to make a desired meaning come out of it, you're going about it all wrong. The frustrating part is that what the Bible teaches is actually completely contrary to the teachings of Calvinism. Calvinism teaches that God has predestined people to hell. Calvinists suggest that this is all done. I've spoken to Calvinists. You can watch videos about this where they actually say God condemns people to hell as a means of expressing his glory. Seriously? The Bible very clearly points out that God will have all men to be saved, though. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. Amen. How will the same God who will have all men to be saved somehow before time began predestine some people for eternal damnation and then use that as a means of expressing his glory to the entire world? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Based on that, how could we ever suggest that God has predestined some to eternal damnation? If the Calvinist view of predestination is, is, is correct, then we just made God a liar. And if God is a liar, none of his words can be trusted, and therefore none of his promises mean anything to us. But listen to what we're told in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. When the Bible is not our final authority on faith and practice, we're forced to be selective with what verses we believe, and we're forced to redefine what verses are actually saying. These verses must mean something other than what they're saying because John Calvin teaches otherwise. Or, and maybe this sounds crazy, but let God be true and every man a liar. Now, I'm smart enough to know that I don't know everything. I'm not going to stand in front of you and claim to know everything there is to know about God, but I can read, and thankfully God has made such things plainly known to those who read and receive it just as he presented it. God's word can be hard enough to understand, 
Let's not go and complicate things even more by trying to add things into the Bible that aren't even there. And just so you're not taking my word for it, listen to what we're told in Revelation 22 and verses 18 and 19. The Bible says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto them the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The message of the Bible is plain and simple as stated in John 3, 36. Jesus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. No one, no one is predestined to heaven or hell. God has predestined that the only way to heaven is through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and the results of salvation is that the believer is transformed into the image of God's perfect Son. Those who are in heaven, they're only there because they believed on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And those who are in hell are there because they have not believed on the only begotten Son of God. God makes himself known. God makes himself available to all men. But the choice is up to us whether we're going to receive him or whether we're going to reject him. Problem number three. Limited atonement. This is the belief that Christ's death was only for those whom he chose to save. Calvinism teaches that God didn't die for everyone, but that he only died for the elect, those who were chosen by God before the foundations of the world to go to heaven. This couldn't be further from the truth. Over and over again, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Let me offer a few verses to prove this point. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world. Never in Scripture is the world ever spoken of to, as reference to, uh, to believers. If anything, it's used to speak about unbelievers. And if God so loved the world, the world of unbelievers, that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever in that world of unbelievers should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life, then we have to believe that Christ's sacrifice didn't just cover the sins of those that were saved or would be saved. It says in John 3, 17, it says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, that the world through him might be saved. The entire world, not just the elect, but the entire world. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 5 and 6, it says, But there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for a few. No. Who gave himself a ransom for all. For all. In John 4, 4, 4, John 4, 42, Jesus had met with the woman at the well as they were in Samaria. And as he led her to salvation, she goes to the city of Sychar, to the city of Samaria, and she's telling everyone about the salvation of Jesus Christ that she just experienced on her own. And she's telling everyone, the Messiah is here, we need to come and see him. And all the people came, and many people were saved that day because of the witness of a woman who met with Jesus at a well outside of Samaria. And notice what it says in John 4, 42. As the group is there speaking to the woman, it says, And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that it is indeed the Christ. Get this, even the Samaritans knew that it says he would be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. 
in Hebrews 2, verse number 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. How do you taste death for every man, and yet your death was only limited to a certain group? There are all sorts of holes, all sorts of issues that we have as we look at this doctrine of Calvinism. And then finally, in 1 John 2, verse 2, the Bible says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of the world, not the Savior of a few. He took upon himself the sins of the world and made atonement for all, that all who come to him have the opportunity to be saved. Whosoever will come might be saved. The disclaimer, though, is that not everyone will receive him as their Savior. Not everyone will come and receive this gift that is so freely offered for any number of reasons. I've spoken to people and they've told me that it's not convenient for them. That they feel that they want to keep living the life that they live and at a later, more convenient time, they'll turn their life over to Christ because they feel right now they just want to enjoy life the way it is. Many people who hear the truth, know it, and just are obstinate against it. For any number of reasons, people reject it. But the point is that people have the opportunity to reject or to receive the message of the gospel because God has freely given us the, the will to do so. He came to be the Savior of the world, even though not all men choose to receive him as Savior. And these are just a few of many verses which all express the truth that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the entire world and that his atonement was sufficient for all to be saved. Can everyone be saved? Yes. Will everyone be saved? No. No. And there are plenty of people that are walking dead. That they may have a pulse physically, but they are dead spiritually because they have rejected and rejected and rejected. And basically, like a leaky faucet, God came and just tightened it once and for all and said, that's it, it's done. But that does not mean that he predestined that individual from before time began that he was going straight to hell. He gave him opportunity and opportunity and opportunity to the point that the man was hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart. And God said, okay, I know in my foreknowledge what you're going to do. You're done. You're still alive. You're still breathing. You still have a pulse. But you're just living out a death sentence, an eternal death sentence, until you breathe your last breath. You're done and you're going to be in condemned in hell forever. But he still gives men the opportunity to trust in him. He still gives all men the opportunity to come to him and to receive his free offer of grace and salvation if they choose to do so. God makes himself known to all because he wants all to be saved. He desires that all should come to repentance. He is the savior of the world. So let's not weaken and cheapen the work of Christ to suggest that it wasn't sufficient to bring salvation to all, especially when the Bible teaches otherwise. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, it tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All, everyone, all. 
that again is not just speaking about a select group of people, but the entire world. All of us, every single human being has gone astray. We have everyone turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, the iniquity, the sin of every one of us. Jesus took upon himself the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, nailed them all to the cross and made full and complete atonement for all that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one's going to call upon the name of the Lord and Jesus is going to say, I'm sorry, I didn't die for you. My atonement was limited. It doesn't reach you. No. No. Because the Bible says he is the savior of the world. These verses are, are crystal clear. And if you cannot see this, it's not because God's word is too confusing. It's because you're choosing not to believe the truth that is right in front of your eyes. The Pharisees struggled with what we refer to as a willful blindness to the things of Christ. And it seems to have carried on to people today who refuse to accept the clear and plain teachings of God's word and follow after man's wisdom instead. After Jesus healed the blind beggar in John chapter 9, really awesome story. Jesus had just been preaching in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees in the temple and he made one of the craziest state statements and declarations that they had ever heard. Describing how he is, in fact, every bit God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, Abraham, your father, look to see my day and rejoice to see it. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. At which point, the Pharisees and all the religious leaders, they picked up stones just ready to put him to death because they considered what he said absolutely blasphemous. And as Jesus is leaving the temple, there in John chapter 9, they pass by a blind beggar. A man who was blind from his birth, the Bible says. And the disciples have all sorts of questions. Why is he blind? What happened? Was he at fault here? Was your parents at fault here? Why is a man born blind? And Jesus says that the glory of God may be manifest in him. And he'll go on to heal this blind man. Bring him sight, which he never had before. And all of a sudden, when everyone should be rejoicing, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they call this blind man in. And they say, you're never blind to begin with, were you? This was all a ruse. You're working with this Jesus. You're working with this lunatic because we know his shenanigans and you're up to no good with him. And the man says, listen, I don't know what happened. All I know is that I was once blind, but now I can see. And I've never heard of it, he says, where a man that was born blind has now been able to see. So say of him what you want, but there's something special about this man that healed me. And later on, at the end of that chapter, Jesus would have, to have a second encounter with that man. And this time, the man would actually be able to see Jesus for the first time. And he believes on him. And he falls off the pages of scripture. And all we read about him is that he goes glorifying God the entire way. And the Pharisees that are left, they're there still questioning. And listen to what it says. In John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. Jesus says, For judgment I, I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. The Pharisees thought that they were smarter than God. Smarter than his word. And as a result, when the truth was staring them right in the face, they chose to ignore it. And they chose to stick with their own man-made beliefs because they had a choice. Jesus didn't mince his words. He told them, he says, therefore, your sin remaineth. 
You have a willful blindness. You're choosing to ignore the truth as it is presented right in front of you. I don't claim to know everything there is to know about God. But I can, but you cannot tell me that God hasn't given man the ability to come to him when we read countless verses that say otherwise. You cannot tell me that God has predestined people to either heaven or hell when there is not even a single shred of evidence suggesting such a belief. You cannot tell me that Jesus Christ didn't die for the sins of the whole world when the Bible very clearly teaches that he did. I may not be the smartest person even in this room, but I'm smart enough to read the Bible and to know that what God says is true. It is true. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't say something, there's no reason for me to believe it. I'll say it before and I'll say it again. If the day ever comes when myself or someone else preaches anything from behind this pulpit that isn't true to Scripture, throw them out and don't even wait. Don't even hesitate. God is not some fallible creature who needs our help to make his word complete. This is a joke. He has given us his perfect word and all we're called to do is to preach the entire counsel of his word as effectively, as efficiently, and as purely and undefiled as we possibly can. God's word never contradicts itself. So if you ever come across something that you can't support in Scripture, let me just say this. May God be true and every man a liar. Tonight we're going to conclude with the final two points. We've looked at the first three problems here this morning. If you have any questions about what we've talked about, I'm available to talk after the service about anything that we've talked about here today. Again, as we come back to tonight, for our evening service, we'll conclude the second part of this and look at the final two problems that we have with Calvinism, uh, which are irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints, and what the Bible has to say about each of these two issues. I pray that you're not taking my word for it. It's not my word. I want you to look at the Bible. I want you to go home. I want you to study scripture. I want you to look for yourself to see what the Bible has to say about these issues, because this is where problems began, where we started following a man instead of following the Word of God. I read a lot of books. I've quoted John Calvin before because he has some great quotes. That doesn't mean I'm going to follow him blindly because of everything else that he's taught that is contrary to the Word of God. I like Charles Spurgeon. I don't agree with everything he has to say. I like D.L. Moody, the same thing. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of people that are dead. I read a lot of people that knew a lot about the Word of God, but I, knew a lot of, I read a lot of people that knew little about the Word of God. But at the end of the day, it's the word of God that needs to be our end-all, be-all. If it's not here, it's not worth our time. The word of God needs to be our source of faith and practice. Go home, study it. I'm just as fallible as John Calvin, as Charles Spurgeon, as D.L. Moody. I'm just a lot less eloquent. Go home and study your Bible. If you have questions about what we talked about, if you want to see my notes, I can give you my notes so that you can have all the verses that we talked about there for your own benefit. You can see that they're not taken out of context. You can see the full context of what they are. If you are interested in a booklet, I have a little booklet for those who have questions about Calvinism. I'll give you the booklet, but let the Word of God be your source of faith and practice. Let it be what you hang everything on. Let it be what you come back to every single day because this is what matters, not some teaching of a man I don't care where they are, how smart they are, how well-educated they are. They're still fallible as any other individual out there apart from Jesus Christ and his word, which is always undefiled, which is perfect and stood the test of time and all opposition. May this be what we stand upon every single day. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll close with uh, a song. Heavenly Father, thank you.
Thank you, Lord, for opening your word to us, Lord. We are discussing things that warrant our time and effort here this morning and even in this, into this evening. I pray, Lord, that your word would be clear. Lord, that we would understand that these are not just man's ideas that we're taking, but, Lord, what your word has clearly taught. Lord, may we not be children that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes in, because we know, Lord, that there are far too many of them. May we be, Lord, men and women, believers that are standing firm upon your word only. Lord, things are going to come and go. Beliefs are going to come and go. But I pray, Lord, that we are standing upon the firm foundation of your word. For when we're doing so, Lord, even the devil himself cannot shake us. Guide us into your truth. Lord, keep us firm as we stand upon it each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.